fairy tale and romance fans, and welcome to Amna Qureshi's The Lady or the Lion. I'm Abigail Miles, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each of our episodes of Amna Qureshi's The Lady or the Lion, a lush historical fantasy set in a Pakistan-inspired world, starring a spoiled princess and her forbidden lover. Our princess, the Shazadi Drakane, takes it upon herself to prove her grandfather's innocence in an attack on neighboring leaders. As Mergzar opens its gates to foreigners, our princess grows close with one of the ambassadors. While navigating forbidden love and court intrigue, she is faced with an impossible decision. To send her lover to the arms of another, or to send him to his death. Which door will she choose, and what will lead her to that final, fateful decision? Come, grab a cup of chai, wrap a shawl around your shoulders, and join me as we escape to a marble palace nestled in the mountains of northern Pakistan. The Lady or the Lion will resume after this short message from the CamCat team. Hey there, lovers of story. Do you find this book unputdownable? Are you itching to hear how it ends? Would you like a copy you can keep forever? This week, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway. One lucky winner will receive the audiobook of The Lady or the Lion for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter, and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry. That's it. It's that easy. Soon, you could have your favorite CamCat audiobook in your ears and at your fingertips. So make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! Cat Publishing presents The Lady or the Lion by Amna Qureshi, narrated by Deepti Gupta. For Mama and Baba, Jazakallah Khair for everything. In the very olden time, there lived a semi-barbaric king. This is not his story. The trial. The appointed hour arrived. From across the mountain, the people gathered into the galleries of the arena. Though considered a barbaric custom in the 19th century, the trial by tribunal was tradition. It was with sick fascination that the villagers filled the seats, the overflowing crowds amassing themselves outside the amphitheater walls. The sky was a murky gray above them. Summer was over. A breeze traveled through the air, and the villagers shivered, clutching their shawls and their children close. The chatter and clamor ebbed to hushed whispers as the Badshah entered the arena at its height, where his ornate throne awaited him. His bearded face was stoic and severe his lips pressed into a thin line, his eyes sharp. The onlookers lowered their heads in respect as he took his seat. His wife, the Wali, sat beside him. A low murmur pulsed through the crowd 
as one more took her seat beside the Badshah. It was the Shehzadi. The low chum-chum of her churiyan echoed through the arena as she moved toward her throne, her blood-red gharara trailing behind her. Her golden crown glistened, bright and shining as her blue-green eyes. She held her chin high, proud as ever, as she took her seat. The villagers had not expected her to come. How she could stomach such an affair was beyond them. To see one's lover torn to shreds or thrust to another was no easy sight. Yet, there she sat, beside her grandfather. They sat directly opposite the two doors, those fateful portals, so hideous in their sameness. All was ready. The signal was given. At the base of the arena, a door opened to reveal the lover of the Shahzadi. Tall, beautiful, strong. His appearance elicited a low hum of admiration and anxiety from the audience. The young man advanced into the arena, his back straight. As he approached the doors, the crowds silenced. A crow cried in the distance, and the lover turned. He bowed to the king, as was custom, but his gaze was fixed entirely upon the Shehzadi. The sight of him seared through her. He reached for her. She reached for him. But their hands did not touch. They were tangled in the stars between them, destiny keeping them apart. From the instant the decree had gone forth to seize her lover to trial, she hadn't spent a second thinking of anything else. And thus, she had done what no other had done. She had possessed herself of the secret of the doors. Now, the decision was hers to make. Should she send him to the lady, so that he may live his days with another, leaving the Shehzadi to her envy and her grief? Or should he be sent to the lion, who would surely tear him to shreds before she had a moment to regret her decision? Either way, they could never be together. Then, his quick glance asked the question, Which? There was not an instant to be lost. The question was asked in a flash. It had to be answered in another. It was time to seal both his fate and hers. Chapter 1 Durkhane Miangal heard the bell echoing throughout the mountains. Her hand lay atop her grandmother's, the Wali of Savat, whose hand lay atop her grandfather's, the Badshah of Margazar. Together, they three had rung the bell to alert the tribe's people of foreign entrance into their land. For the first time in centuries, the capital city of Safed Mahal was opening its doors to foreigners, those from their neighboring districts, coming to harm her family. The sound resonated through the mountains, in cacophony with crows crying. It was said that crows brought visitors with them, and as a child, Durkhane was always excited to see who would visit her castle in the clouds. But today, 
she knew the visitors would bring turmoil. While entrance throughout Murgazar was permissible, sparingly for trade, entrance into the capital Safed Mahal had been forbidden for centuries. Until now. It is done, Aga Jan said, his old face flushed florid from the wind. Yes, Janan, Dadi said somberly. Now we prepare. Durkhane was clad in a pistachio green lenga choli, her ears and neck dripping emeralds and pearls encased in pure gold. The ensemble made her eyes more green than blue, and her skin a soft brown. Beside her, her grandparents were dressed in bottle green, her grandfather in a sherwani, her grandmother in a silk sari. Maroon-red mendi covered Durkhane's hands in flowery details of blossoming roses. Her curly hair was swept up in an updo with ringlets framing her face in front of her dupatta, which sat atop her head and fell down one shoulder. She was the essence of a princess, but she would need to be more to protect her people. It was the beginning of April when the world cracked open its shell to let greens and pinks begin to spool out. The weather was softer, warmer. Up in the bell tower, there was no spring. Wind slapped her cold on both cheeks, turning her nose numb. From here, she saw the great expanse of lands she was heir to, the jewels of the earth. The palace was on the side of the mountain, with views of both the empty valleys and the populated ones. On one populated mountain, she saw two waterfalls, and while ordinarily the glittering water brought her peace, today the two holes punctured in the mountain flowed water like eyes flowing with tears. In the distance of the unpopulated lands, she could almost see the blue-green Savat River which protected them in the north from the Kebzu kingdom. Now, for the first time, they would need protection from those within their lands. Ya Khuda, protect us, she prayed. They waited for the bell to quiet, the valley to turn silent. Then, hand in hand, her grandparents made their way to the door to head back down to the palace below. Come. Agajan motioned for her to come. Just a moment longer, she responded. I want to make dua. Her grandfather nodded, allowing her solace, and she was alone. Ya Allah, she prayed. You are the protector of all people, so please protect my people. Bless us, forgive us, let no harm come to us. Amin. She blew onto all her lands, the homes that dotted the mountains, praying her people and her country would stay safe from those who were coming. I will protect you, she promised her people. It was her sacred duty. With a final glance, she went back down to her palace to prepare. A banquet had been arranged for the ambassadors and Durkhane had to change to get ready for it. The defences were up, 
but their greatest defense was their behavior. They had to act absolutely unbothered by any of this and entirely innocent, which they were. They were to be kind, but with an undercurrent of cruelty. As Durkhane walked to her rooms, she noticed a man walking alone in her hall, his fingers dancing along the windowsill. She paused, blinking. Who was he? More importantly, what was he doing here? Durkhane approached until she stood beside him. Noting her presence, he turned and smiled at her, his black eyes molten and warm, hiding a thousand emotions and layers. And you are? she prompted. He smiled an easy smile. Ambassador Asfandiar of the Afridi tribe of Jardum, he said. His deep voice was stone, ragged and solid. Pleased to meet you. He lowered his head with respect, but a smirk tugged at his lips. Durkhane frowned. From what she knew, the Jardum people were courageous and rebellious. They were good fighters who were pragmatic in picking their battles and making alliances. She didn't even know him, but she knew he would be trouble. Sudden anger flashed through her. She had known the foreigners were coming, but now that they were here, in her home, the irritation was thrice-folded, and in her halls. This would not do. How pleasing indeed for you, Ambassador, she said, voice clipped. That such an egregious occasion has arisen to force Murgazar's hand into welcoming your sorry hides into our pure lands. He met her glare with an easy half-smile, nearly laughing. Forced your hand, he drawled. And here we were under the assumption the mighty Murgazari couldn't be forced to anything. Her breath caught. She had slipped. She had let her temper get the better of her when she knew she was supposed to be fawning over the ambassadors with sweetness to prove her grandfather's innocence. Her cheeks burned. Worse still, he had twisted her words and was looking at her like she was as non-threatening as a child. It tore at the insecurity deep within her that told her she would only be a pretty little fool, beloved, yet useless. Decorum be damned. In that moment, she felt less the sweet rose petals and more the deadly thorns. Haven't you any manners? she asked, a bite to the words. She had never been anything but loved and adored and the way he looked at her made her heart freeze over. You will speak to your princess with respect, ambassador, lest I have to cut off your tongue. Princess? He raised a brow, mock surprised. He cocked his head to the side, looking at her intently. She wanted to point out that she was, in fact, dressed as one, and how daft he must truly be to not realize but she refrained from doing so. Instead, she lifted her chin. She felt small somehow, even though she was far from it. With her tall stature, she was used to commanding the space around her. But somehow, 
This man was looking at her as if she was as clear and thin as water. One look at her was proof enough that she was born of the mountains and the rivers. Eyes blue-green, her hair as wild as the rustling trees. Soft brown skin, like golden earth, she was solid like a tree. But she had the silken stream of the river and the contours of the valleys. She knew she was beautiful. She twisted her lips. Be careful where those eyes travel, ambassador, she said, saying ambassador like an insult. People have been blinded for less. You may blind me, but the truth we shall still see, he said. Whatever humor he had granted her before was gone. Now his voice was somber. Durkhane furrowed her brows. This was usually the part where people lowered their heads, excusing themselves. No one liked to be on the receiving end of the Shahzadi's temper. Yet, Asfandiyar took a step closer, meeting her gaze head-on with a blazing one of his own. What precisely is that supposed to mean? She snapped. I was at the summit, he said, face hard. So it was a threat. Durkhane did not even bother to check for a nearby guard. She knew no one would have the audacity to hurt her in her own palace. The summit had been organized by the Wali of Tirza, who had invited the Walis and advisors of the other four zillas, or districts, of the mountains to discuss a treaty of unification, to join the tribe's people of all five zillas into one united nation. The Badshah was adamantly against the idea. Independence was integral to their culture. The other zillas believed in this as well, but with increasing pressure from the Lugam Empire in the east and south, the Wali of Tirza had managed to get four of the five zillas to agree to at least begin negotiation of unification. That is, until the explosion. And seeing as Marghazar was the only zilla absent, all fingers were pointed to her home. I witnessed the explosion, heard the screams, Asfandiyar continued. I saw the blood and the bones. Those leaders were not merely your so-called enemies, but my colleagues. Moreover, they were mothers and fathers, wives and husbands. They were close confidants and friends. They were people. And if Murghazar truly was responsible for such carnage, well, then the butchery will be repaid in kind. Was that a threat? Don't forget your place, Ambassador. He smiled that easy smile again. I assure you, Shehzadi, he said, turning her title of princess into the insult. I know my place quite well. Then you know this is my palace and my land, and I can have you killed in a variety of ways without having even a single strand of hair coming undone. Unfazed, he tisked. That's thrice you've threatened me. Where is your hospitality? She pressed her teeth together and said nothing. He drew closer. Anyhow, your threats are empty, he said, close enough to touch. 
for if you kill me, you will have the war you so delicately prevented. I assure you, my life is very dear to the Wali of Jardum. It was true. The only reason the ambassadors from the other Zillas were even invited to Margazar was to buy the Badshah time to prove his innocence so that war could be avoided. It was a gesture of good faith. Her threats were empty. But something turned in Durkhane's mind as she recalled. The Wali of Jardum was Shirin of Khwaja, a young Wali who had inherited the Zilla when her mother was killed at the summit attack. She looked at Asfandiyar then. How handsome and young he himself was. Not yet twenty. Her smile was sugar-honey sweet, but laced with poison. I didn't realize they were sending the Wali's whores as ambassadors now, she said matter-of-factly, more than a little bit proud of herself. Asfandiyar offered her a smile just as sweet. Of course, that's why they sent me, he responded coolly. We had heard whores were the only company you kept. Durkhane couldn't help her mouth from falling open. Her entire face scrunched with anger. But before she could react further, he tapped her forehead lightly, where her eyebrows were pinched together. I wouldn't hold that face for long, he laughed. It might get stuck that way. And what a shame it would be to ruin such lovely features, Shehzadi. Her fingers curled into little fists, her long nails piercing skin. She didn't know what to say. But before she could, a boyish grin split his face, setting dimples deep into his cheeks. How could he turn from grief-stricken and furious to nonchalant and amused so quickly? Surely there was something curious about such control over one's emotions. Excuse me, but I have important matters to attend to, he said, bowing his head with respect and walking away, shoulders relaxed, chin high. She watched him go wanting to throw a dagger into his broad back. He must have sensed her watching, for he looked over his shoulder and winked. Unbelievable. It was only when her servants surfaced in the hallway that Durkhane was swept back to reality. Shahzadi, one of her maids called, your bath has been prepared. Releasing a measured breath, Durkhane entered her bathing room where the tub was filled with warm honeyed milk. Her maids undressed her, then scrubbed her skin with milk cream until she was soft and smooth. Then she transferred to a second tub filled with rose water. All the while, Asfandiyar's face lingered in her mind, his words playing over and over. They were people. Surely, such a loss was tragic. But it was not her grandfather's fault. Her family was innocent, and she would prove as much. After she was clean, she went to her dressing room to see an elaborate draping suit. The folds of the brocade lehenga were thick with embroidery, crystal stones, emeralds, and cutwork. The peplum top held the same heavy work, as did the dupatta. 
It was more ostentatious than anything she had ever worn. Spread beside it were what must be half her weight in jewels and gold. Twenty-four churiyan for each arm, rings for almost each finger, dripping earrings, a wide necklace, thick anklets. It was florid and ornate. And while she and her grandfather usually adored the extravagant, this was excessive to make a point. It showed the wealth of the capital Safed Mahal, the Zilla Swat, to foreigners, the power of the Rani Zai's tribe and the Myongol family, the might of the Badshah of Mergazar and his crown princess. Durkhane straightened her back and raised her chin. She was the daughter of the mountains and river Savat. She was a princess to this valley and the purest tribe. She would not let a lowly ambassador faze her. Chapter 2 Durkhane stood by her grandfather's throne, waiting to greet the ambassadors. Beside him, her grandmother, the Wali, sat on her own throne. Already feeling tense, Durkhane turned to her grandfather. He met her gaze with a warm smile. Don't worry, Mirijan, he whispered, squeezing her hand. With his other, he reached for his wife's hand. The Wali and the Shahzadi by my side, together. There is nothing we cannot conquer. She knew she was his beloved beyond anything in the world. She was her grandfather's John, his very soul. She was loved by him above all humanity, and he was loved by her. Durkhane would never let anyone hurt him, never let harm come to anyone she loved. The door swung open with a solid thud as the ambassadors passed from the receiving room into the throne room. There were four ambassadors, each accompanied by one servant. There had been requests to bring their own security. Those had been denied. There had been requests to bring along spouses. Those had been denied. Eight foreigners were already eight too many. The ambassadors from the four zillas, Barang, Tirza, Jardum, and Kura, came close, spreading out until they stood before the Badshah. Three ladies and one man. Durkhane's eyes immediately went to Asfandiyar. He wore a more formal black sherwani atop his black shalwar kameez. It looked simple, but when she looked closer, it had fine black embroidery woven into the material. Subtle, but fine. He looked sharp. When he caught her staring, he smirked. Pressing her teeth together, she turned her gaze to the others. She would not lose her composure as she had in the hall. She knew her orders. She was to be the sweet and beloved princess and to treat her guests with kindness and respect. She would prove her grandfather's innocence. The ambassadors all bowed before the royal family. When they rose, the Badshah's eyes narrowed when they fell upon Asfandiyar. Come now, this won't do, the Badshah tisked. The Jardum sent their servants to represent them. 
Durkhanay bristled at the cruelty in her king's voice. It was evident Asfandiyar wasn't a servant. Did her grandfather mean to humiliate him? Asfandiyar was unfazed. No, Your Excellency, Badshah of Margazar, he responded coolly. My name is Asfandiyar of the Afridi tribe, ambassador from Jardum, here to represent Wali Shireen. The Badshah was unimpressed. A Jardumi, he asked. One so black? My mother was from Dunas, Asfandiyar responded. He hadn't lost an ounce of composure, but she noted his jaw clenched as the Badshah laughed. His eyes flicked to the wali for an instant, almost unintentionally. Then his focus was back on the Badshah. It seemed like he recognized the wali somehow. Very well, son of a black woman, we accept you in this court, he said, as charity was beloved of the prophet. Asfandiyar bristled, but kept his smile, showing no reaction to the king's cruelty. Unease needled through Durkhane. She had no misgivings about punishing him for crimes against her people, but the color of his skin was no affront. This was not the first time she'd been jarred by her grandfather's beliefs. She'd spent the first portion of her life somewhere else, apart from her grandparents. Their gap in age did not help to assuage such chasms. Asfandiyar retained his aplomb, but she could see his smile like a cracked egg, jagged and crooked, hiding everything soft inside. Asfandiyar was black no doubt about it. He was different, and being different made you dangerous. We accept you all into this court, into Safed Mahal, the jewel of Savat and Murgazar, the Badshah proclaimed. My sincerest condolences for those who suffered in the abhorrent attack on the summit held in Tirza. I promise you, on Allah and his messenger, Murghazar had nothing to do with such a horrid act, and we will all strive together to uncover who the guilty party is. Punishment will be swift and severe, I assure you. You are here in my court as a sign of solidarity and comfort, my brothers and sisters. Stay in our court, eat our food, speak with our people, and learn that the Murghazari are enemies to no one that we are all brothers and sisters serving one Allah, following one divine message. I extend asylum to you all. Everyone was smiling, acting like her grandfather's words were sincere, as though they truly were brothers and sisters, when in truth, Durkhane was in a den of snakes, all with fangs poised to attack her family. She would not let that happen. She swore to it. You are my honored guests here in my court, the Badshah declared. You will be safe and cared for and honored, protected by the mountains and by my warriors. We are not enemies. We are family. But Durkhane heard the threat underneath, as did the ambassadors, that they would be safe so long as they did nothing out of turn, 
and if they did, the mountains would suffocate them, barring exit, and his warriors would kill them. Now, her grandmother said cheerfully, let's all retreat to the banquet hall for a feast. Durkane followed her grandparents into the ornately decorated ballroom. There, her extended family and the other nobles were waiting for them, smoking shisha and making light conversation. The men were dressed in crisp white shalwar kameez and black or grey waistcoats, their heads topped with wool pakols. The women donned clothing heavy in floral embroidery on smooth silk or soft lawn cotton. Thin chiffon dupattas covered their hair, and warm wool or velvet chadars covered their shoulders from the chilly mountain night. Their hands, necks, and ears were covered in shining gold, their lips coated pink or red. Durkhane knew they were all curious and frightened and exhilarated and infuriated by the foreigners. The hall opened into a courtyard where large bonfires lit the night and warmed the cool air. The smell of food filled the air. Naan cooked in the tandoors, wafting melted butter and garlic, while coriander garnished dishes of butter chicken and large swaths of mutton legs with roasted potatoes. Chapli kebabs were stacked high with onions, while carrots and raisins garnished dishes of lamb pulao. The air was full of smoke, firewood, tobacco, and roasted meat, all swirling together to create a sweet, charred smell. This was her castle in the clouds. This was her home. The rhubarb played softly in the background, the melody as distinct as her heartbeat. The stars glimmered in the vast sky like sugar crystals in black tea. She looked around, watching the people, those who were hers and those who were not, until her gaze caught on Rashid, the nobleman she was to marry someday. He was the son of the head of the Yusufzai clan, the most powerful people after Durkhane's own family. After an instant, he caught her glance, his ears turning pink as he quickly looked away. She wished he would dance with her, do something, but he would never do anything so blatantly dishonorable without an official courtship. Their inevitable affection for one another was silent, yet understood, and equally understood by both her grandmother and his. But Durkhane had more important things to worry about. She couldn't understand how to exonerate her grandfather when they were innocent. Don't fret, Guria, her grandfather whispered. All will be all right, my smart little girl. Her grandparents left her to mingle. Walking toward the familiar faces of her court, she stopped by Lela Baji and played with her cousin's new baby girl, a chubby little thing. Durkhane rattled the churian on her arm in front of the baby, who cooed and laughed in response. Feeling a little better, Durkhane watched the people from the ambassador's eyes. Her grandfather was eccentric, sometimes unbelievably cruel, as he had shown with ridiculing Asfandiyar. Her grandmother, the Wali of Savath, was kind but quiet, stoic. She was always on guard. And her people? 
the Mergazari were loud, lively. They laughed widely and ate continuously. It was the semi-barbaric part within them all, the lack of modesty and overabundance of pride. To talk, to dance, and to laugh, all exuberantly, the men and women together. They were entirely unashamed of their culture, and had grown even more proud and obnoxious during her grandfather's near fifty-year reign of prosperity. Durkhane could tell it bothered some of the ambassadors to see the women so brazen, to see the dancing and the noise and the drinking exhibited by the elite. It was un-Islamic, but some traditions were hard to shed. Come now, everyone join us in a dance, her grandmother exclaimed. In the background, the dhol and pipes called the people to dance under the stars. She circled with the ladies. The men did the same. It wasn't unusual for the dance to be mixed. But she knew some of the other tribes, like Barung, were more conservative. All the ambassadors joined the dance, except for the ambassador from Kura. Durkhane took the hands of those beside her, and the beat started off with slow steps as they circled. To the rhythm, they clapped inside the circle at the instant the music called for, then brought their hands out again, only to repeat. The music gradually quickened, as did their motions, adding an extra clap, adding a twirl between the beats. To show their regard for Durkhane, the ladies clapped, then touched their fingers to their foreheads in respect to their princess. As they did, Durkhane smiled, looking away. Across the floor, she caught Asfandiyar's gaze, glowing with firelight. He grinned. She averted her gaze quickly, her breath catching. Face flushed, she risked a glance back, and he was staring at her still, and so openly. She had never known such forwardness. Usually, boys were tripping around her, such as Rashid, always nervous in such a sweet, endearing manner. But Asfandiyar, he had no shame. Durkhane knew she was beautiful, even more so with the precision that had gone into getting her dressed, and boys usually did stare, though not so unabashedly. She wondered if it was because the Jardum Pass connected the East and the West, so its people were known to be more metropolitan. Whatever it was, she couldn't stand the heat of his gaze. Heart beating quickly, she danced with the movement of the song, quickening her steps as the dhol intensified, and between the clap and spin, she caught Asfandiyar's eyes on her, unwavering, unflinching. As the beat of the drums quickened, so did her heart, filling her with a fiery feeling she couldn't displace. He was focused more on her than the steps of the dance, which he executed perfectly, even as the beat quickened further. His neck shone with sweat, but it was nothing compared to the glitter in his eyes. Breathless already from the dance, Durkhane felt there wasn't enough air in her lungs. He kept staring, easily gliding in and out of the dance steps, eyes never leaving hers. Durkhane couldn't stand it. I'm going for a drink, she said to her friends, out of breath. They continued on without her as she went to the side, picking up a goblet of shikanjvi. She sipped it carefully, 
resisting the urge to drink the spiced lemonade in one gulp. She forced her heart to find a steadier rhythm than the quick music and even quicker pounding of feet. Somehow, she felt him before she saw him. He slid into the space beside her, grabbing a drink as well. He didn't say anything, just turned to look at her over his goblet as he drank. She watched the long column of his throat. She sensed people watching them, but she couldn't bring herself to move. He was staring at her lips, which were coated in purple lipstick. She knew it looked as if she'd been sucking on blueberries, her lips plump with stain. He swallowed. Shezadi, he finally said, breaking the silence. He lowered his head in respect. A smile tugged at his lips. Ambassador, she replied, unamused, even though she was, ever so slightly, charmed by his infectious buoyancy. I had heard you are famed for many skills, Shahzadi, he said, lowering his head close to hers so she could hear him over the music. But I had not known dancing to be one of them. Her heart ricocheted against her ribs. Something illicit coursed through her. I'm a woman of many talents. What else can I expect? He drew closer. She met his gaze, matched his smirk. Good things to those who wait. But I am not very patient, he sighed, close enough to touch. Kasamse, she asked, voice bored. Truly? Teri kasam, he replied with a grin. What a flirt. He swore it on her name, as if she meant anything to him. She resisted the urge to roll her eyes. She knew she was supposed to be sweet-talking the ambassadors, reassuring them that, despite Murgazar's bold customs and manners, they were not cold-blooded enough to plot the murder of their neighbors. But Asfandiyar rifled something deep within her. She bit back a rude retort. She was supposed to be polite. The banquet was loud, and with each sentence, he drew closer. Come now, you are famed for your kindness, yet all you have been to me is cruel. His grin softened into a pout. Firelight danced in his eyes. I am kind to my people, she countered, not those with ill intentions. He smiled fully then, drawing close enough to whisper into her neck. His body swallowed the cold space between them, and when he spoke again, his breath was warm against her ears. I assure you, he said, you don't know my intentions. The words sent a shiver down her spine. He was too close. She wondered if he was drunk, but when she drew back, his eyes were entirely clear of alcohol simply glittering with mischief. She narrowed her eyes. She would not be fooled. If this was the game he wanted to play, she would play. And she would win. She rested a hand on his shoulder, mirroring the way he had spoken into her neck. They were a whisper away from an embrace. 
she lifted her chin to speak soft words into his ear. Just as you don't know mine, she said, voice husky. She would dance along the knife's edge of seduction and secrets. She would not get cut. Durkhane withdrew her hand. They held each other's gaze. A prayer for you then, Shahzadi, he said, raising his glass between them. May Allah keep your intentions pure as the snow that caps the heavenly mountaintops. And may he keep your thoughts even purer, she added, raising her glass to his. They both grinned, suddenly drunk off the game that had begun. Amin, they said together, and they drank. With a smirk, Durkhane flitted away, chin up. She swayed her hips, feeling suddenly giddy. She knew he was watching, but she didn't bother to turn. Instead, she approached another foreign face, determined to wrap all the ambassadors around her fingers before they could cause any harm. Putting aside Asfandiar, who had already infuriated her, she needed the rest to believe her grandfather innocent of that deadly attack and people were so much more amiable with a healthy layer of sugar added to them. But that did not mean she would be feeble or a weakling. Durkhane was famed for her kindness, as Asfandiar said, yes, but she could be cruel too, just like her semi-barbaric grandfather. Nobody would expect it from the rosy princess, making them all the easier to prick with her thorns. She couldn't afford to slip with them, as she had with him. The ambassador she approached was a young woman, who had a slight limp and carried a jeweled cane. When she saw Durkhane approach, she immediately extricated herself from another conversation, taking a few steps forward to meet the princess. Galalai, the ambassador introduced herself, daughter of the Wali of Kura. Pleased to meet you. Durkhane responded, calling information to her mind. Kura was a relatively irrelevant zilla, known to remain neutral or uninvolved in most matters. It was famed mostly for its beauty, the velveteen greenery, and colorful flowers and moonlit water. Galalai came from a land of gardens and orchards, lush greenery and flowers. The people were mostly non-threatening, though that had changed once their wali had been injured at the summit explosion. Wondering whether or not to trust me? Gulalai asked, smiling. Don't worry, I'm lame. How much harm could I possibly do? Though not lame in wits, I can see, Durkhane replied. Besides, I'm younger than you, and by Allah's command, I must respect my elders, Gulalai said, voice teasing. Durkhane smiled. Younger than me? You must be a baby, for I'm usually the youngest in the room, save for the infants. Yes, I know, Shahzadi, Gulalai responded. But remember, where the young give the elders respect, the elders must give something in return as well. And what would that be? Sweets, of course, Gulalai said and warm baths, and pretty little gifts. You must coddle me. Durkhane smiled, taken by this girl's bubbly personality. 
Come now, you must only be a few months younger than me, she told Gulalai. That is true, Gulalai responded. All teasing aside, I know what it is like not to be taken seriously because of your age. Seventeen and eighteen, and heir to our family's titles, means we are old enough to decide the fate of our people, yet we are treated like pretty little fools by our seniors. Yes, Durkane agreed. Pretty little fools indeed. Though not fool enough to believe the Badshah orchestrated the attack, Gulalai whispered, just loud enough for Durkhane to hear. Laugh, as though we are chatting about silly little nothings, Durkhane said through her grin, as though Gulalai had made the most hilarious remark. The ambassador mirrored her behavior, lightly tapping her arm. Clever little princess, she said. My father was injured badly. They aren't sure he'll walk again, but I know in my heart it wasn't Murgazar. And how could you know that? Durkhane asked. It's much too obvious, Gulalai replied, pretending to laugh still. I'm infuriated by my father's injury, of course, but I believe you and your family. Somebody is trying to frame Murgazar, and I don't wish for my people to die in a false war. Frame Murgazar, began Durkhane, but Gulalai cut her off. Let's chat over chai sometime, Gulalai said, leaning forward to kiss both her cheeks. Durkhane mirrored the action. From the outside, they appeared as two young girls gossiping about silly things. But Gulalai's voice lowered to a sincere warning, one that sent a chill down Durkhane's spine. Until then, be careful around Asfandiyar Sahib, she whispered. He'll bring you nothing but ruin. Before Durkhane could ask for elaboration, Gulalai was swept away by a noblewoman. Heart hammering, Durkhane tried to understand if she could truly trust Gulalai or not. She needed to acquaint herself further with both ambassadors before passing any judgments. But there was no time to consider where to place her trust, because her grandmother was excusing herself, following a servant out of the room. Strange. Her grandmother never slipped away from formal occasions such as this. Whatever it was, it had to be pertinent. Outside the hall, she followed the barely audible voices to a secret alcove in a darkened hallway. Her grandmother was speaking to a dirty soldier, streaked in mud and blood. But it was his face that frightened Durkhane. He looked like he'd been kissed by death. Dadi? Durkhane asked. Only close family members were permitted to bypass formal titles for more personal names. Upon seeing the princess enter, the soldier bowed his head with respect and excused himself. Dadi, she asked, voice low. What happened? Her grandmother placed a hand on Durkhane's face, smiling a forlorn smile. Mary John, she said, not to worry her. You don't fret. Go back to the party. Attend to those in your court. Dadi, Durkhane repeated. Her grandmother sighed. I had called for soldiers from the front lines to fortify Safed Mehel with the onset of our visitors, she explained. But it seems our Lord has taken them back from this world. They're all... Durkhane began, trailing. 
She couldn't finish the thought, let alone the sentence. Dadi nodded. They're all dead. But how? Don't worry, Gudia, her grandmother assured her. Allah will provide for us. With a kiss to Durkhane's cheek, Dadi left, back to the party, leaving Durkhane alone with her thoughts. All their soldiers in the north, dead? It would mean sending more from within their lands to the front lines, thinning the security they had within. But how could they all have perished? The Kebzu kingdom had great fighters, but never had Murgazar suffered such great losses. Perhaps... Something shifted in the air behind her. Dadi? She called. A shadow flickered beside hers. But when she turned, she was alone. Chapter 3 In the sunroom, the weather was warm, full of birds chirping and rustling leaves. From the window, the land on a mountain cut with vertical slices that looked like fingers reaching toward the sky, toward something unreachable. But they got close. Maids entered and set the table for tea. Fine porcelain from the Far East was laid out, along with potato samosas and chickpea curry to go on top, along with tamarind chutney. There was a steaming pot of chai and various little finger foods to go along with it, Durkhane's favorite almond pastries and flaky biscuits. God, this place is gorgeous, Gulalai said, entering loudly, her cane clunking against the marble floor. Margazar truly has a knack for finery. I haven't seen anything so grand in any of the zillas. Shukriya, Durkhane responded. She wondered about the other zillas. She had never been. But she didn't need to go. Murgazar was enough for her. Your wealth is truly astounding, Gulalai said, taking a seat with a labored sigh. Tell me about your grandfather, the great Gazan Miangal of the Ranizai's tribe, the boy king of legend. It's nearly fifty years of rule now, isn't it? Yes. Well, what else do you want to know? Durkhane responded. The Lugam Empire slaughtered his elder brothers and father. That's how he became king. Fifty years later, and here we are. She didn't want to say any more. She wanted the truth of her family to stay cloaked for all eternity. The truth of the trauma Agajan faced. Of tragedy and sorrow and sudden power. It was under him that Murgazar came to encompass Savath, Trichmir, and Dirgara. Under him, that Murgazar became a hegemony among the Zillas. After his coronation, it was true, Agajan became a little mad with grief and vengeance. The Badshah had been fighting the Lugam Empire ever since, and no matter how many battles were won, he was insatiable. She knew he needed victory to avenge his family's deaths. She knew he would stop at nothing until then. And yes, sometimes she disagreed with how hard he pushed, how stubborn he was. But he was everything to her. 
Durkhane would do anything for her Agha Jan. Fine, don't say anything more, Gulalai responded. She set her cane to the side as a servant poured her some tea. Now, time for some reiterated advice that I don't think you understood the first time. Stay away from Asfandiar Sahib of Jardum. I saw him follow after you when you left the banquet yesterday. Durkhane's heart ricocheted against her ribs. Asfandiar had followed her? But she hadn't even seen him. She opened her mouth in protest, but Gulalai put up a hand. Oh, save me the excuses, she said, stirring sugar into her tea. I believe you can handle yourself, but he is handsome and charming. Anyone is capable of being a fool for love, even you, Shezadi. Feeling exposed, Durkhane narrowed her eyes. I already know the man I am to marry, she said quickly, thinking of Rashid. She wasn't a fool. He is the son of a nobleman from our court. He is of good family and kind and smart. You're engaged? Gulalai asked, biting into a cookie. Fascinating. Durkhane shook her head. It is understood. And what of love? It will come. With time, respect, and effort, I will grow to love my husband, whoever he is. But my duty is first and foremost to my people. She was a princess. She had to do what was best for her people. I would still be careful around that Jardum boy, though, Gulalai advised. People love to spread horrid rumors. Don't worry. Durkhane told her. She was unbothered by the thought of rumors. The people wouldn't believe such filth. They knew Durkhane wouldn't do anything she wouldn't have the courage to admit to up front. Besides, the people were better than that. They weren't malicious and gossipy. Besides, I am sure he is preoccupied with his wali Shireen, Durkhane added, gauging Golalai's reaction. She wished to know if Asfandiar really was involved with Shireen, as Durkhane had alleged in their first meeting. Oh, her, Gulalai said, cheeks turning pink with anger or a blush. Durkhane could not quite tell. Perhaps both. I don't want to think about her. We have more important things to discuss. You're right, Durkhane said, biting into a biscuit. We must stop this impending war before it comes. The Badshah had three months to prove his innocence, or there would be war. Until then, she hoped the ambassadors could be sated by hospitality. It is my opinion that somebody is trying to frame Margazar, Gulalai said. It's much too obvious for the Badshah to be behind the summit attack. Yes, but who? Durkhane asked. I can't figure it out. Who has anything to gain from this? I can't see what anyone has to gain from this summit explosion or the war they're all calling for, Gulalai said. My father doesn't wish to go to war either. But if it is what the rest of the Zillas have agreed upon, my father won't refuse his allies. And I believe Barung is the same. Whereas Jardum and Tirza do seem a bit enthusiastic for war, don't they? Theoretically, Tirza and Jardum should be in the clear, since their walis passed, Gulalai responded. 
They couldn't have planned the summit explosion as grounds for war because it was their own who were injured. Theoretically, Durkhane agreed, waving for more tea. But isn't the enemy usually the one in plain sight? Which made her think. What made her so sure Gulalai and the Kurazila were innocent? Their wali had been injured, yes, but not killed. And Gulalai was making a great show of being her friend. A fair point, Gulalai said. But Tirza was heading the summit. Why attack their own meeting in their own homeland? Tirza is also conservative. And I know they have problems with some of the Badshah's rulings, Durkhane added. But they are the strongest military zilla. If they wanted to fight, they would skip this negotiation nonsense and go straight to war. They would lose, but wars rarely had any purpose other than harm. What would be the point of making Murgazar look guilty? Gulalai stirred her tea pensively. Despite how much the other Zillas might detest Murgazar, you are still the strongest Zilla. We surely hoped to eventually convince your grandfather to join us once we were all united. It is why the ambassadors have just been negotiating simple things, like goods or more accessibility. We are taking advantage of the three months we are here. And even then, on the request of Murgazar, Durkhane said, it was the Badshah who offered to accept ambassadors in order to gain time to prove our innocence and appease the other Zillas. The ambassador from Barung, Palvasha Sahiba, is a bit elusive. I can't get a good read on her. But I don't know where this leaves us. Gulalai rubbed her temples. I have a headache. They looked at one another and sighed. They were going in circles with no true evidence. Their biscuit supply had long since dwindled, and the warmth of the morning was thickening with afternoon. It definitely wasn't Murgazar, Durkhane said. That much I know. And it definitely wasn't Kura, Gulalai added. That much I know. I believe you, but Gulalai, tell me this. How can I trust you? Durkhane asked. It was just the two of them in Durkhane's sunroom. She regarded Golalai closely, staring into her warm brown eyes. Simple, Golalai tore into a samosa. Because I want your favor, and I intend on gaining it through friendship and loyalty. Kura does not have want or need for much, and I do not intend to achieve anything through conniving. I wish for us to be sister tribes one day. Whatever you offer through goodwill is enough for me. What if we have nothing to offer? Durkhane responded. Shehzadi, you mustn't bother with false pretenses, Gulalai said with a smile. All the mountains know of your soft spots and kindness. Even if the Badshah and my father see no use in an alliance at the present, I think one day you and I will benefit from it. Besides, I don't think you want war between our Zillas, and neither do I. Durkhane nodded. And to prove my loyalty, here is a secret. Jardum and Tirza have become more brothers than cousins, Gulalai said. What exactly does that mean? Durkhane asked. I can't say more, for Jardum is Kura's ally as well, Gulalai responded. And even that I shouldn't have said, 
but take it as a token of my commitment to an alliance with Murgazar. Keep an eye on Tirza. I will, Durkhane said. Thank you for the warning. As for our alliance, only time will tell, she added. But she had a good feeling about it. Her gut wasn't very often wrong. Have you considered the possibility of it being the Kebzu kingdom? Gulalai said after some consideration. I've given it much thought, and they would have an incentive. Keep our zillas weak so that we cannot become more effective at fighting them. It's a similar incentive to Murgazar's. The Kebzu kingdom only pushes on Murgazar's borders in the north, Durkhane replied. Why would they care if the southern zillas unified? Perhaps they would see it as a future threat, Gulalai responded. If Murgazar joined the unified zillas in the future and pushed back harder on the northern border? Hmm, Durkhane said. You bring up valid points. But how would they have known about it at all? The summit was only known to the five wallies, particularly the date and location. So it had to have been a wally, Gulalai bit her lip. I wish I had been there. Perhaps I could have gauged something better. Do you know all the wallies personally? Durkhane asked. I've never met any of them. We're acquainted, but I don't know them that well, Gulalai replied. She considered something for a moment then shook her head. But do you know who does know them all quite well? And who was at the summit? Durkhane had a sinking feeling that she already knew the answer. Asfandiyar Sahib. Durkhane sighed as Gulalai continued. If anybody will know something, it'll be him. Chapter 4 the clouds kissed Durkhane's cheeks. It brought her peace. Nature reminded her of the princess that she was. She could handle this and all that was to come. Some days after the arrival of the ambassadors, she gathered the people at court for a walk through the mountains. When it came to hospitality, what better way to be kind than to show the foreigners the beauties of her lands? She arranged for all the ambassadors to join her, along with some Murghazar nobles and a few of her cousins, though not Lela Baji and the baby, sadly. Her niece's soft giggles would have pacified Durkhane's discontented mood, which was even worse, because her cousins Zermina and Saifullah still had yet to arrive. Durkhane walked behind everyone, more comfortable with them all in her sight. Gulalai was busy chatting with Palvasha Sahiba, the ambassador from Barang, about road designs. The ambassador from Tirza, Ruksana Sahiba, walked alone. When Durkhane approached to make polite conversation, Ruksana Sahiba fixed her with a glare so sharp that Durkhane spun away with childish spite and refused to speak with her. That left Asfandiyar. She very purposefully did not initiate contact with Asfandiyar, who looked even better against the backdrop of mountains during the soft morning. His wool pakol sat crooked on his head, allowing some curls to sit on his forehead under the cap. He was in black shalwar kameez once more, though this time adorned with a metal-grey chadar, 
not that Durkhane noticed, of course. She was far too preoccupied with appreciating her beautiful land. Green grass stretched across the hills like plush velvet. The trees looked like little shrubs one could pick from the landscape, like flowers from the earth, so soft and small, like moss. It eased her heart ever so slightly, until her gaze strayed once more to Asfandiyar. He'll bring you nothing but ruin, Gulalai's words rang in her mind. But Durkhane could handle herself. Gulalai was also the one to observe that he was one of the only people who might be able to help untangle their questions about what had happened at the summit. So perhaps her advice was contradictory. If somebody truly was trying to frame Murgazar, Durkhane needed to find out who and why. The Badshah and Wali were hard at work trying to draft negotiations, and even harder at work trying to find evidence to prove their innocence. But what evidence would there have been? If it was the Kebzu kingdom behind the attack, they must have been informed by one of the Zilla's Walis, the Walis that Durkhane knew nothing about. But Asfandiyar was friends with them all. Perhaps she needed to make an ally out of him after all. If she could get him to trust her, maybe he could give her information about the summit which could lead her to figure out who was behind the attack. He didn't seem bloodthirsty for war. Perhaps he wished for peace as well. What had he said? That his life was of value to the Wali of Jardum. If that was so, he must have been close to the Wali and her family. Durkhane looked at him again this time considering him closely. The way the sun shone off his high cheekbones, the long, curled eyelashes, the plump, soft lips, the thicket of ebony curls, his height, his built. He looked like a warrior, face harsh and sad. He turned, catching her staring. Her heartbeat spiked. Durkhane averted her gaze. Asfandiyar slowed his pace. In a few steps, she was side by side with him. He regarded her with open curiosity, as if waiting for her to speak. She shivered, then shivered again, suddenly bitten by the cold. Her fingers had numbed without her noticing, her nails turning a shade of lavender blue. May I, Shahzadi, he said, voice low. She blinked in surprise. He extended his hand. Something sharp turned in her stomach. He smiled in a manner meant to be courteous, but she saw the dare that glittered in his eyes. He didn't think she would allow him. It was uncouth. But she would not be intimidated. How uncharacteristically kind of you, Ambassador. His eyes glittered, but he did not smile. She placed her fingers delicately onto his forefinger, and his gaze caught on the family crest ring she always wore on her third finger. Sudden emotion ran through his eyes, but before she could read it, the mischief was back. Strange. His hand swallowed hers. Something volatile, something barbaric ran through her as he ran a thumb over her fingers.
his knuckles grazing ever so teasingly against the curve of her palm. Pleasure rose in her throat, but she swallowed it. Comforted, he asked, a small smile tugging at his lips. She smiled sweetly. Not quite. He raised her fingers to his lips, then blew air into her hand. She couldn't help the delicious warmth that ran through her, but two could play at this game. She lifted her fingers until her nail grazed the smooth stretch of his bottom lip. His mouth parted, releasing a soft sound. Just as his lips closed into the whisper of a kiss, she swiftly pulled her hand away. He looked stunned, starved. Shukriya, Ambassador, she said, trying not to smile triumphantly. I am most comforted now. She swore she almost heard him laugh, but he withheld his lips in a downturned smile. A draw, then. They continued their walk, side by side, and admired the scenery. Below them, they could see a small lake, and the vertical folds of the mountains looked like the ruffles of an extravagant lenga. Higher on the land, the roads looked like lightning bolts imprinted into the earth. Durkhane reminded herself to focus. She needed to make an ally out of him. You are quite the dancer, she remarked. Men were easily placated with compliments. Asfandiar smiled. Nothing in comparison to you, he replied. Tell me, what other skills do you possess? There's too many to count, she replied coolly. For the sake of your people and mine, let us hope exoneration is one of them, he said pointedly. You've three months to prove Mergazar was not behind the summit attack. Durkhane bit her tongue. The innocent needn't worry about the swarming of vultures. The truth always reveals itself. The sooner you find out, the sooner we can all leave, he said, voice bored. Despite wanting that outcome herself, she couldn't stand his indifference to the privilege he had of being in her lands. Why would you hasten your departure? Was it not you and your Zillas that begged for the chance to be allowed entrance into my home? Only to ensure there's no fabrication of evidence, he replied. The chance to negotiate is a plus for the others. But Jardum and I couldn't care less about the famed Murgazar. We've had great success without you for all these years and have no need of you now. Oh, please, Durkhane said. Murgazar has twice the resources of any other Zilla. Yet you withhold, Asfandiar replied. Durkhane faltered. We spend our resources on our people. And what of the other tribes? Their leaders should take care of them. But you just stated, Murgazar has twice the resources of everyone else. Don't you think that's unfair? We can't help the lands we were born to, after all. Haven't you considered that trade would help the other Zillas and their people as well as your own people? Isolation is a barbaric notion. Well, no, 
you haven't considered it. For the same reason you didn't attend the summit. You are a haughty, selfish lot. Asfandiyar shook his head. At least we have one another. With our joint forces, we've been able to hold back the Lugham Empire on all of our borders. And no matter how strong Murghazar is, that strength cannot last forever. Especially if Murghazar cannot prove its innocence and there is war. Yes, you are strong. But a triple frontier war? Even Murghazar will crumble. There was merit to what Asfandiyar was saying. Durkhane had never considered it like that before. Perhaps he would be a useful ally after all, though she was doing a poor job at trying to make him one. Is that why you are here? Durkhane asked, keeping her voice level. To convince Murghazar into your talks of unification? No, that is not why I am here. Then? Asfandiyar cut her a sharp grin. For you. I came for you. What? She didn't understand. But it didn't stop her heart from racing as the space between them narrowed. Her stomach twisted. He balanced her chin on his index finger and lifted her face to meet his. Of course, he said, voice husky. I came to see the famed jewel of Murghazar. His voice split into an easy grin. He was mocking her. She turned her cheek, but she couldn't help her heartbeat. It was then she realized that they had gotten even further ahead of everybody, no one in sight ahead or behind them. You're distracting me, she said, irritated. Yes he replied. Gulalai had warned her, but she couldn't help how much she enjoyed his company. He was surprisingly candid. She cocked her head to examine him. Why are you here? she asked again. The truth, please. The truth? Yes. She was losing her patience. I'm a spy, he smirked drawing closer as she frowned. Aren't you as well? He whispered. Isn't that why you're here? Don't worry, I won't tell. Her frown deepened. I'll give you some advice, spy to spy, he said. But it's a secret between you and I. Do you think you can manage that? He was treating her like a child. She wanted to strangle him. Don't let every emotion show on your face so plainly, little red, he told her. Her eyebrows furrowed together, her face folding into a frown. See, as Fandiyar continued, tapping her cheek, your face gets florid. She wanted to scrunch her face up in irritation, but she caught herself flattening out every emotion she could until her mien was detached. That would be good advice if I was a spy, she tried to say coolly. How unfortunate you lack basic logic. Why would I be a spy in my own home? Okay, he countered, eyes glittering. 
If you are not a spy, why are you here, talking to me? When you and Gulalai Sahiba seem to be such friends, and Palvasha Sahiba is desperate for your help, and Ruksana Sahiba's anger should surely be placated. Why are you here? She started, unsure. Nobody ever questioned her. She looked at him. Because the mountains are beautiful. Because I am a princess. Then, heart-hammering, she said, Because I enjoy your company. His lips twitched. Well done. I cannot tell if you are lying or not, he responded, charmed. She had told him a half-truth. Durkhane was never good at lying. She was always filled with acid, and everything burned for the heartbeat before the lie left her lips. Often, she would feel so guilty, she would concede and tell the truth. The mountains are quite beautiful indeed, he said. The mountains and the river Savat make a good pair. Indeed, they do. Durkhane loved them both but she couldn't help but sigh in remembrance of the valley in which she had spent the first half of her life. What troubles you? Asfandiar asked. She hesitated, but his face was kind and curious. Besides, she needed him to trust her. Despite their bickering, perhaps they could move forward, reach some sort of common ground, as with Gulalai. I wasn't raised here, you know, she finally told him. After my parents died, I was sent away to a village named Mianathob, far from this place, to be raised by distant family. My father was the crown prince, and after he died, she swallowed. I am the crown princess. I needed to be kept safe. How did they die? he asked. Something sparked in his eyes at the mention of her father, but it was something she could not place. Everyone knew she was an orphan, but few knew the full story. Unfortunately, she was not one of the few either. Her grandparents said there was no use in knowing things that would only hurt her, and after some time, she had stopped asking. She told him all she knew. They were assassinated. I barely survived myself. I'm sorry to hear that. This time, she knew what was in his eyes. Genuine sorrow. The valley was the first home I had ever known, she continued. So I miss it. Things were so much simpler in the farmlands. Bariyammi, my grandfather's sister, raised me for the first part of my life. She had grown in a lush green valley by a cerulean blue lake, surrounded by golden farms and eternal sunshine. There, her grandfather's sister, who never married again after losing her husband in the wars, raised her. The village had been filled with widows, a sort of safe haven for women with no family and nowhere else to go. When Durkhane thought of her childhood, she imagined her head in Bariyami's lap, the older woman's gentle hands stroking her hair as she told story after story. She imagined a pretty cloth doll 
that a maid had told her was a secret gift from her father that became old and worn because she took it with her everywhere. She hadn't known any sorrow there, only peace and simplicity. She had been spoiled then too, but with attention and love, vastly different from the jewels and finery she was spoiled with at court. Back then, she would visit the marble palace once a year for a few of the hotter months when the mountains were cooler, and she had always yearned to be home in the valley. The mountains had seemed too cold back then, unkind and harsh. She was adored by her grandfather, of course, and her chache and pupo, but it hadn't been home. And while she loved her grandparents, Agajan would always be busy, and Dadi would always be reminding her of her duty as princess when all Durkane wanted was to play. At the palace, her every choice and her every word were scrutinized. It's been years since I've been back at court, and I adore it, truly, she told him. But I miss home, too. Back then, I didn't even know how to say my whole name. I could only get out Durre, so that's what everybody called me. She paused. Nobody calls me that anymore. She hadn't told anyone that before. But there was an easy comfort in talking to a complete stranger. She could be whoever she wanted to be. She dreamed about and missed the fields, the women, the rivers, the crops, the heat, the sunlight, the golden sheen of it all, the stories, the stars. Sometimes, Durkhane ached for that simple life away from court. It's horrid, because I remember then I would miss my grandparents and the mountains. And now I'm missing my aunts and the valley, she said. Always missing something. Asfandiar didn't say anything, and they continued walking. From here, the mountain was mud-brown, but the base was grey-blue where the stones met the river, like the mountain's toes had gone numb. Rule number two. If you want to be a successful spy, Asfandiar said, breaking the silence, don't give anyone information for free. She stopped walking, her lips turning down into a frown. She had slipped. Again. You've tricked me, she said stupidly. She hated to be made a fool of. She really was going to strangle him. His smile didn't waver, but it was one of kindness, not malice. He shook his head. I haven't, he told her. For, in exchange for your anecdote, I shall share one of mine. When I was a boy, I didn't love the mountains either. I would visit my mother's tribe in Dunas, where there are no mountains at all. We lived right by the water and the vast ocean's beauty is incomparable, I believe. There the horizon stretched for centuries, and at night there were more stars than I've ever seen here, shimmering in an infinite sky. I don't think there is anything more beautiful than the stars and the stories they hold. My mother would craft tales from the constellations. We'd lie on the beach for hours, 
staring at stars. Durkhane made a soft sound. She didn't know what to say. They walked in silence for a bit longer. You didn't have to, you know, she finally said. I know, he replied. The devilish glint returned to his eyes. But perhaps I enjoy your company as well. Their eyes met in an infinite moment. It felt like staring at the sunrise, like being outside of time. She felt a strange softness toward him. The hatred she knew she should feel already gone, and Durkhane couldn't help herself. She knew he could be her enemy, could be using her, or distracting her, or making a fool of her. But in the end, she just couldn't help herself. She wanted to know him. It was as simple as that. She wanted. Durkhane! The moment shattered. She turned to the sound of a familiar voice. Durkhane grinned. Zermina! Chapter 5 They were here. As her cousins, Zermina and Saifullah, grew closer, she saw they gave Asfandiyar a strange look, glancing between the two of them. Durkhane put on a smile, masking the slight panic that rose in her throat. Where have you been? Saifullah said, furrowing his brows. We've been looking for you. Why did you stray so far? Zermina asked her. I didn't realize, Durkhane replied. But never mind that. Tell me about your journey. The twins whisked her away before she could realize she hadn't said goodbye to Asfandiyar. But when she turned around, he was already gone. Almost like he'd never been there at all. As they walked along the path, Making their way back to the palace, they passed a small river. The water looked like a liquid moon, luminescent white and grey-blue. It was beautiful, but hazy. She couldn't see what swam beneath the surface, couldn't see anything but the current pulling the water along. As they made their way back, they passed a group of noble women speaking with Palvasha Sahiba, the ambassador from Barang. Durkhane caught a snippet of conversation. I do appreciate how beautifully managed your lands are, Palvasha Sahiba said. She spoke slowly with a mild stutter. Barang, too, has many... Durkhane slowed her pace, straining to listen further, but she could not hear. What is it? Zermina asked, slowing beside her. I'm not sure. Durkhane replied, but we're about to find out. It would be too conspicuous to turn around and follow Palvasha Sahiba, but Durkhane knew these trails intimately. Saifullah and Zermina followed her wordlessly as she made a sharp turn, then sidestepped down the steep trail edge. There was a parallel path that ran below the trail the ambassadors were walking, built into the mountainside. Come on, Durkhane whispered. She quickened her pace, holding onto her jewelry so that it would not jingle. Zermina did the same, and they slipped along until the voices grew louder above them. 
This side trail was designed precisely for this purpose. Ambassador from Barang, Durkhane whispered to her cousins. They listened closely. I find it most agreeable, Palvasha Sahiba said, her voice high with enthusiasm. That did not sound like an ambassador who believed Mergazar to be guilty of attacking her wali. How clever indeed, Palvasha Sahiba cried. I would be so grateful if you would consider describing to me. From the corner of her eye, Durkhane saw Zermina slip. She bit back a cry and threw her hand out to stop Zermina from falling. But in doing so, the gold churion on her arm jingled loudly. The three of them stilled. The conversation above stopped. Silence filled the mountains. Durkhane pressed further into the mountainside. If the ambassador or noble women above looked over the trail edge, they would not see Durkhane and her cousins. But just in case. Then she noticed a steel-gray shawl lowering into her sight. It swung back and forth until it entered the opening of the hidden trail rather than hitting solid mountain. Oh, no. Dear Shahzadi, I hope that is not you down there, an amused voice called. Asfandiyar. What a nasty trick indeed, though poorly executed. They'd been caught. Pite mutera, Durkhane muttered. He had not even been with them earlier. He must have heard her churia as well. Unfortunately, she was the only one obnoxious enough to be wearing so much jewellery. Zermina, Saifullah hissed. Shut up, she snapped. The conversation above had truly ceased, and there was no point listening further. Cheeks burning, Durkhane motioned for them to retreat. They made their way back, pace quick, so as not to be truly caught red-handed. Ashamed by their lackluster performance, Durkhane rang for tea and changed her clothes. Only after being placated by biscuits and samosa did Saifullah breach the subject. Foreigners conspiring in our own mountains. How could Aga Jan have let it come to this? Saifullah sighed, running a hand through his wavy black hair. It hasn't been done for centuries. They were angry at her grandfather for allowing the ambassadors to enter Safed Mahal in the first place. For the people of Murghazar, for her family, tradition was everything. It isn't so simple, Durkhane argued. Murghazar looks immensely guilty right now. To appease the other zillas, it had to be done. But what precisely are the ambassadors doing here? What were those two discussing? Zermina asked, dark brown eyes confused. She played with her long braid of thick black hair. It is clear they do not simply wish for a view into the land of legend. I doubt it's so simple, Saifullah countered. His eyes matched Zermina's. They looked so alike to one another, and nothing like Durkhane, who everyone said looked just like their mother, her Nazopupo. The twins resembled their father, while Durkhane was all her grandfather. The other Zillas have never had the opportunity to negotiate with Murghazar, Durkhane explained. 
this is the first time any of them have been allowed a serious audience with the Badshah. And while Aga Jan won't be bullied into any sort of agreements, he is open to negotiation in order for appeasement. Nobody wants war. And it's buying time to prove our innocence. We shouldn't have to prove our innocence, Saifullah said. The other Zillas should accept our word. I suppose, Zermina sighed. I still don't like it, nor do the people. What do you mean? Durkhane asked. Have you heard of unrest? This was new. The twins nodded. When we were traveling from Dirgara into here, along the way many seemed disgruntled, Zermina explained. They don't understand why foreigners are being allowed entry into Savat when for centuries they have been turned back. Murgazar does not need to prove anything to anyone. If the Badshah was a strong leader, he would see that, Saifullah said. Durkhane stilled. Mind your words, Saifullah, she warned, voice deadly. She straightened to her full stature, which was broader than her cousin's wirier builds. The transition from cousin to princess was seamless. Pardon me. Saifullah said. He met her eyes with a hint of anger and frustration, as if she couldn't see what he saw. Regardless, while disapproval and discontentment were bearable, outright criticism was unforgivable. Achabas, Zermina said, breaking the silence. How are the ambassadors, Durkhane? Any we can possibly trust? That Palvasha Sahiba seemed awfully elusive. Gulalai Sahiba of Kura is nice, Durkhane said, steering the tension from her tone. She discussed her thoughts regarding the ambassadors with her cousins, the same way she had with Gulalai yesterday. She was left with the same frustration at the end. Durkhane groaned. Nevertheless, this is a puzzle for which we don't have all the pieces yet. But she had a sneaking suspicion Asfandiyar knew more than he let on. Tirza is the worst, of course, because of their insistence in establishing a united nation, Saifullah said, especially because of their disapproval for the Badshah's semi-barbaric ways. But they don't understand him, Durkhane argued. She hated anyone to disapprove of her grandfather. They didn't appreciate what it meant that he had been a boy king given the throne at fourteen, when his father and three elder brothers had been slaughtered by Lughams. Of course he would be eccentric, a little bit overzealous, a little bit unhinged. I wouldn't trust Jardum either, Saifullah added. I haven't heard good things about Asfandiyar. He gave Durkhane a pointed look. By the way, what were you two doing earlier? Zermina asked eyebrows raised. Nothing, she said, a little too sharply. The siblings exchanged a glance. That was entirely unconvincing, Saifullah said. But we've more important matters to attend to. Just be careful around him. The twins were eighteen as well, only six months older than Durkhane, but they sometimes spoke to her like she were a child. He isn't so bad. She replied curtly. Zermina raised a brow, giving her a look that said she saw through everything. 
Don't worry. I'm only searching for weaknesses, Durkhane said. But it tasted acidic, like a half lie. She wasn't a fool. She could handle herself. We shall all search for weaknesses, Sermina said. We will protect our people, Saifullah said. We will protect the mountains of our home, even though we are not heir to it. His voice was strange, as though he knew something Durkhane didn't. Nonetheless, he sounded bitter. She gave him a glance, but he didn't notice, or pretended not to. It was true, Saifullah and Zermina were not heir to any part of the mountains. But it had always been that way. They and their younger siblings were born of Agajan's youngest, her Nazopuppo, the youngest of her father's three siblings. Zmarak Chacha, the eldest after her father, was the Wali of Trichmir. The next of her father's siblings was Suwail Chacha, the Wali of Dirgara. They were obedient branches in the tree of her grandfather's domain, a bit distant from the trunk, but connected all the same. Mergazar encompassed the three smaller regions of Sivat, Trichmir, and Dirgara, and each family stayed in their own ruling region. Nazopuppo and her family, without a region to rule, lived in Dirgara, where the twins' father was from. She was a sapling that had spread her roots elsewhere and did not visit often. Dirgara is too far away, Durkhane sighed. I'm cross with you for not bringing Nazopupo along to stay. Oof, the way Ammi dotes on you and forgets us, Zermina said. You would think you were her child and not us. You know that is only because Ammi and Vakdartaya were exceptionally close, Saifullah said. Durkhane's heart squeezed. And I adore her so, Durkhane said. I wish you all lived here permanently, with me. Zermina laughed. You call me here every few months anyhow, and my stay is always for another few. Are you still not content? No, Durkhane said, voice purposefully petulant. I want you all to myself, always. Durkhane grabbed Zermina and hugged her tightly to her chest. Laughing, Zermina struggled, but Durkhane held her close. All right, all right, she said. I'm here. May I breathe? No, Durkhane refused. You're such a baby, Zermina said, pinching Durkhane's chubby cheek. With a laugh, Saifullah pinched her other cheek. Durkhane pouted. Oh, Saifullah teased. Are you going to cry now? Yes, Durkhane responded, swatting both of them away. I'm going to cry to Agajan, and then you'll both be sorry. On either side of her, Zermina and Saifullah dropped her cheeks and pulled her into a hug. No, no, they said. We'll be good to you now. Fine, Durkhane said with an elaborate sigh. But to make amends, you must never leave my side. The twins laughed. We'll never leave you, they said. She smiled and held them close. Good, she replied. Now let's play some games. They moved to her game room 
and immediately set up a game of cadamboard. The next few hours passed in the bliss of laughter and competition and games, the mockery and teasing that belonged to family. That night, as Durkhane and Zermina climbed into bed, Durkhane was grateful the emptiness was filled. Zermina had her own room in the marble palace, but tonight they would stay awake until Fajr, talking and talking. My heart has longed for you in this time apart, Zermina said, holding Durkhane's hands. Durkhane squeezed her hands and was glad her cousin was finally home. She felt safe, more like herself, stable. Finally, Saifullah has left, Zermina said, snuggling in. I can ask, how is the kind Rashid? Zermina wiggled her eyebrows. Durkhane laughed. She'd almost forgotten about Rashid. Though as son of the strongest nobleman, he would make a good ally. Quiet, as usual, Durkhane replied with a sigh. I wonder when he'll gather the courage to talk to me. Not all are as courageous as you, Zermina teased. Besides, it is good to have shame. How boring, Durkhane thought to herself. Any new gossip with you? Durkhane asked, changing the subject. Zermina sighed. Mama showing me this nobleman and that, but they're all too old or too stupid for me to consider. I yearn for love, just as you do. But duty must always come first, Durkhane said, reminding both Zermina and herself. Yes, Zermina agreed. Or I told Mama I'll just stay with her forever. And she said she would like that, to keep me all to herself. But such is not the way of the world. When she and Baba have passed, what will become of me? You could stay with me, Durkhane said. I'll take care of you always. Hmm, Zermina said. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Just you and I. It would, Durkhane agreed. Durkhane knew one day she would be Badshah, and she would fulfill her promise to take care of Zermina, to take care of everyone, from her extended family to all the families that lived in her mountains. It was her sacred duty. Chapter 6 Some days later, Durkhane made her way down the mountain, enjoying the view, the emerald green mountains, the tufts of trees, the cerulean blue sky. The thin streams of a waterfall looked like the white strands of an old man's beard. On another mountain, clouds hung low in the sky like smoke, making the mountains look like they were on fire. Here, nature was an entity of its own. And to Durkhane, it was the loving presence of the parents she had never known. The trees had supported her when she had learned to walk. The air had kissed her cheeks every morning. The rain had softened her angry tantrums. The sweet hum of birds had sung her to sleep. It warmed her heart. This was her home. She was on her way down to the villages 
Durkhane, the devoted princess, tried to spend a few hours with her people every few days at least. There were various villages scattered along their main mountain, and she tried to visit different ones on different days. She'd been neglectful with the arrival of the ambassadors and wanted to investigate the unrest her cousins had mentioned. Today she went to Kajli, her favorite village. Besides, a little love from her people would help assuage the shame she felt at her failed espionage attempt. It might clear her head a bit, too, to be away from the palace, give her more time to consider her conversation with Gulalai and consider allyship with Asfandiyar. Today she had tried to get Zarmina to accompany her, but Zarmina had been busy with something. Durkhane had asked Saifullah then, but he was suspiciously quiet and busy as well. Durkhane set out anyway and let the hours spool away, listening to the villagers' grievances, quelling their calms. Durkhane would read books to children in schools or help the women cook or go on walks with the elderly. It made her feel less lonely most days. Today, she knew it would ease the tension she felt from the ambassador's arrival and Saifullah's strange distance. Above all, she reassured her people that the Badshah and the Wali and the Shahzadi would not let them down. Shahzadi Durkhne Api, a little boy's voice called. She turned to see Mahmood, a five-year-old village boy. Hello, Guddu, she replied crouching down to catch his running hug. He wrapped his arms around her neck and squeezed. Look, look, he said, bringing a piece of paper before her. He unfolded it to show her a drawing he had made. It was a drawing of the pointy mountains with clouds on top, and standing atop the clouds were two figures. Wow, she enthused. He smiled, proud of himself. Will you come play cricket with us? He asked, grabbing her hands. With a laugh, she nodded, allowing him to bring her to the rest of his friends. They all cheered upon her arrival, crowding her, waiting for hugs and kisses. She was smothered by them all. Her heart felt full. When she tired of playing, she went to where one of the elderly women of the village was sitting, stitching embroidery onto a little kurta. Nano, how are you today? Durkhane asked. Did the salve I had sent help at all? Ah, my Shahzadi, the Nano responded. Durkhane lowered her head to allow the old woman to hold her face. Yes, the salve helped, but my blasted knees. I am too old. Durkhane waved a hand. Nonsense. Come for a walk with me. They just need to be put in use. Durkhane took the woman's hand, and they began a slow walk. This was what it was to be Shahzadi, to spend time with the people, to be their princess, their daughter, their sister, their friend, to be everything for everyone. They walked past a little creek, and the white water looked like a stream of luminescent milk. Look, Nano! she said. See how beautiful Allah has made our world. 
and he made our Shahzadi most beautiful of all, Nano responded, kissing Durkhane's face. But how I miss my Hussein. The old woman spoke of her son, who had died in the ongoing war against the Kebzu kingdom. He died with honor, Durkhane reminded her. But she knew it was of little consolation. The people were too heartbroken over those lost to the endless wars against the Kebzus and the Lughams. The war against the Lugham Empire was the only thing keeping Murghazar safe from becoming a colony. Their imperial-minded neighbors had been expanding for decades, and the Lugham Empire had the advantage of size and resources. The only reason Murghazar had remained unconquered was because of their ability to fight in the mountainous terrain. The wars had become worse in the past few years. She knew it was because the Badshah was getting closer and closer to defeating the Lugham Empire once and for all, and was thus disbursing all his energy and resources to the Eastern Front. But she couldn't tell the people as much. Losing their men was tough on the villagers, not only emotionally, but economically. With fewer workers in the field, they couldn't keep up with the crops. Durkhane tried to think of solutions. The women could work in the fields, but the children would need to be watched. Perhaps she could establish centers for the children to go after school or extend the school hours in order to give the adults more time to work. But as Durkhane continued on through the village and met with more and more people, war wasn't the only grouse the people had. Everyone was in a mood because of the ambassadors, from the women tending to the grain to the men cutting and cleaning meat. The ambassadors are only here for a little while, she tried to explain. And it's in the best interest of Murghazar. We wish to avoid war at all costs, especially with our men already fighting the Kebzu kingdom and the Lugam Empire. She could tell they were angry with the Badshah, that they disagreed with and resented what was going on but they would never say as much out loud. They were discontent, not dissident. She listened attentively to their grumblings. Always the devoted princess. I will speak with the Badshah, she assured them. Don't worry. Durkhane tried her best to dim the people's worries. Yet she could tell they listened only for her happiness. This was the part where they thought she was silly, pretty and young, to be doted on and adored, not capable of true action, not capable of really understanding their grievances. Beloved, yet useless. Durkhane was adored, and loved being adored, but sometimes she wanted more. She didn't know how to appease the unrest growing through the villages. At the very least, everyone disagreed with allying with the other Zillas. Something flickered in the corner of her eye. Durkhane glimpsed a shadow somewhere, a tall and lean man. For an instant, she wondered if it was Asfandiyar following her. Perhaps she was imagining things. Nonetheless, it made her sharper, even though she knew there were guards silently tailing her 
ensuring her safety. She was more on guard as she walked through the silent trail. Durkhane stopped in her tracks when she heard something. Muffled voices ahead. On another occasion, she might have ignored it, but her sharpened attention refused to let it go. She approached, then stopped when she saw a young man and woman pressed against the side of a house. Lovers. Her heartbeat quickened, and she averted her gaze quickly, but something wasn't right. She could hear the girl whimpering as the boy's mouth moved across her neck. Durkhane cleared her throat. The girl met her eyes and gasped. The boy, however, was preoccupied until the girl tried to shove him off her. Unrelenting, he held her in place. Durkhane picked up a rock and threw it at his back. What? The boy turned and immediately paled. Shazadi! He released the girl and took two steps back, lowering his head. The girl scrambled to retrieve her dupatta from the floor while the boy had the good graces to look embarrassed. When Durkhane looked closer, she noted the girl was crying, her mouth swollen. Durkhane narrowed her eyes. Come here, she commanded the girl. What's your name? The girl came close, wiping her cheeks and sniffling. She couldn't have been older than fifteen. Inaya, she stammered. Was this boy hurting you? Durkhane asked. Inaya looked back at the boy, who answered with a sharp look of his own. Don't look at him. Answer me. Inaya lowered her head, then nodded slightly. Anger burned in Durkhane's chest. She rounded on the boy, who was staring at his feet. He seemed a year older than her, just nineteen. Come here, she demanded. He shot forward and stood before her, though he wouldn't meet her eyes. Do explain, Durkhane said. His cheeks burned red. I, I didn't mean to, he said pathetically. My hands slipped. I see. The woods were silent around the trail, no one else in sight. The boy mumbled an apology, but that wasn't good enough. On your knees. The boy had no choice but to obey. He went to his knees. Hands forward. Hesitantly, the boy put his hands forward, and she saw angry tears glistening in his eyes. He apologized again, his voice clipped. Inaya shifted uncomfortably, still behind Durkhane. Inaya, hand me those rocks, Durkhane said, pointing to two large stones. She obliged, one by one. They were heavier than they looked. Durkhane took one and held it at her eye level above his hands. The boy whimpered, understanding, but he didn't pull away. It was not in the Margazari to be cowards in the face of punishment. Moreover, he knew doing so would insult the Shahzadi, which would earn him the Badshah's wrath, something nobody in their right mind would solicit. Durkhane forcefully dropped one on each of the boy's hands. The crunch of bones was loud in the quiet. He cried out in pain. Oh, dear, she said. 
Looks as though my hands have slipped as well. The boy was crying now, hands still beneath the stones. She kicked them off and saw his fingers were bloodied, the bones at strange angles. How gruesome. Guilt panged through her. But she could not have the locals thinking she hadn't inherited anything of her grandfather's spirit. The guilt gave way to anger. She would not be underestimated, considered silly and frivolous. She could be just as quick and clever as her grandfather. Get up, she snapped. He did as he was told. With one finger, she tilted his chin so he looked into her eyes. Let us hope such a mistake won't reoccur, she said, voice sweet. Tell your friends as well. Where there was one scoundrel, there was bound to be an entire herd. He nodded, face wet with tears. Fear and pain shone in his eyes as he fled. Durkhane turned to Inaya. You have nothing to fear from him anymore, she said, voice soft with kindness. Inaya nodded, wiping away her tears. I thought he loved me, she said. Poor fool. And how Durkhane hated fools and scrupulously avoided becoming one herself. She gave Inaya's arm a pitying squeeze. Let me walk you home. Inaya lived in a cluster of homes that seemed eerily silent. Usually the women here would be out hanging laundry at this time. When Durkhane followed Inaya into one house, she heard a cacophony of coughing. A young man stopped her before she could go any farther. Lala Farooq, what is it? Inaya asked her older brother. She went to his side. Abu's health has taken a turn for the worse, Farooq replied. And four more have fallen ill. He turned to Durkhane. Shahzadi, I beg your pardon, but you mustn't enter here. Are they all right? Durkhane asked. What's the matter? Hay fever, perhaps, due to the changing of seasons, the man responded. It was April, and winter had thawed to spring. But as Durkhane visited more villages and homes over the course of the next few weeks, more and more people were falling ill, until it was no longer merely a coincidence. It was a concern. Our fierce heroine seems to have met her match in an equally fierce hero. But beyond the romance, there seems to be external forces at play, forces Durkhani herself does not yet understand. Stay tuned for our next episode of The Lady or the Lion, as you and Durkhani both dig deep to uncover the secrets lurking across the mountains. So, don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our ebooks are also available in print and ebook format on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. 
CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms and our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet. Thank you.